Let us go before the Lord in prayer again. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come again. Lord, we worship you now through the teaching of your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would exalt Christ in the hearts of your people, these who are listening and are gathered here, and those who shall listen from afar. Lord, may you open the things of Christ to them, that they may see him high and lifted up. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel of grace. We thank you, Lord, for giving us the ability to hear it as we are going to learn some weeks from now from the Lord Jesus Christ himself saying to the Jews, you don't believe because you can't hear. And we are here believing and we are here hearing because you have caused us to hear. So, Lord, we pray that you cause more hearing of your word this morning. We pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. John 8, 33 to 42. John chapter 8, 33 to 42. They answered him, these are the Jews, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you'll be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. The word of the Lord. Our title, someone title, it's going to be one, stand. (laughs) Abraham's children the gospel, and salvation. Abraham's children, the gospel, and salvation. And it looks like we are going to have one or two more on this very subject. It's a continuation of sonship. It's a continuation of sonship. It's a continuation of salvation as we have been learning it in the past few weeks. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and he abides in the house of God forever. That's the nature of the Sonship of Christ. He is the foundation and cornerstone of the house of God. But everyone else is born not as a son, as Jesus is the Son of God. But everybody else is born as a slave to sin, in bondage to sin, and the effects of sin, that is, 
being under the power of the evil one, death and condemnation. And it is important for us to understand sonship and its connection to salvation. To be a son, to be a son of God means when Jesus says he is the son of God or we are the sons of God, it means to be free from sin as God is free from sin. It means to be holy and righteous as God is holy and righteous. But only Jesus fits that description of being holy and righteous as the Son of God. Only Jesus is intrinsically holy and righteous in himself as the Son of God. And of him we are told by the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 7.25, where he says, He is holy, that's Christ, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. And as I have said before, God does not have any grandkids. He does not have any nieces or nephews. He only has sons or children. And you are either a son or child of God or you are not. You are either elect or non-elect. You are either saved or unsaved. You are either Ishmael or Isaac. Your mother is Sarah or Hagar. You are either Jacob or Esau. There are no neutral positions. And there are no degrees of salvation. You are not 15% saved. And you are not 85% saved. It is 100% or zero. So to be the son of God means one possesses that which is in his son. To be the son of God means one possesses that which is in his natural son. That is righteousness, holiness, eternal life, the rights of inheritance, among other things. And that is what the gospel is saying to us who are in Christ. We have been put in Christ that we may possess all that is in Christ Jesus. But no one, as we have been learning, is made the son or child of God by anything that they do. Jesus alone has natural sonship by eternal existence and by birth. And everyone else who is not Jesus becomes a son only by naturalization. I'm going to explain that. One has to get their immigration papers right before they can acquire heavenly citizenship. In the U.S., or any other country of the world, if one was not already born a citizen, being a citizen by birth, they can acquire citizenship by naturalization. The law of each country stipulates how one can be a citizen of that country. You have to go through a process. You have to meet certain conditions before citizenship can be granted. But that citizenship is acquired citizenship. It is adoptive citizenship. Sister Jeannie has 
natural citizenship. She has natural U.S. citizenship. Sister Ella has naturalized citizenship. She had to go through the process of acquiring it. You didn't have to do anything to get it. And heavenly citizenship has its own paperwork because you were not born a natural citizen of heaven. It has its own legal process that has to be followed and it is done by God in Christ alone. And it is done in election, by election in Christ Jesus, redemption by his blood. That is how God bestows heavenly sonship, heavenly citizenship, heavenly adoption. And when we are talking about sonship, we are talking about salvation. It's just another way of talking about salvation. We are not talking about adoption of some poor kid somewhere across the world. Of course, we are some poor kids across this world from heaven. (laughs) So when we are talking about sonship, we are talking about salvation. And when we are talking about being a child or son of God, we are saying you have been saved. We are talking about you being saved. So salvation or sonship is given in Christ by God's election and is accomplished, is perfected, and sealed in Christ by the redemption that is in his blood. So all these people who say there are many ways to heaven, they don't understand how God works. They don't understand the legal process of acquiring heavenly citizenship. You can't get heavenly citizenship outside election in Christ. And you can't get heavenly citizenship outside the blood that is in Christ Jesus. If you remove those two things, there's no salvation. And there's no sonship. The blood of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, is the ransom payment that purchased us and paid for our heavenly sonship and citizenship. When you are going through your naturalization process, you have to pay some money for that. And if you can't afford it, then you are not going to naturalize. But that is going beyond meeting all the other requirements that are stipulated in the process. So those who have been naturalized in Christ have passports as the sons of God. And their passports are stamped by the blood of Christ and they say in big bold letters, by grace alone, by Christ alone, by faith alone to the glory of God alone. If your passport does not say that you have applied at the wrong consular office, at the wrong embassy, you need to come to our embassy. <laughs> and by this I am saying you need to hear about our gospel of free and sovereign grace. Because that's the only way that God bestows heavenly citizenship. So our sonship with God is by grace alone. And it is by election according to grace. And it is not for everyone. It is not for everybody. But it is only for the remnant. In the Old Testament, if you are reading the Old Testament, 
Israel go through cycles of being overtaken by their enemies. A lot of them die, but there's always a remnant that is preserved. A remnant that always comes back. A remnant is a piece of cloth that is good for nothing. It's a piece of something that is remaining, but is good for nothing. That's the original understanding of a remnant. A remnant, if you're talking about a piece of garment, you have already sewn your suit. And you have all these pieces that you just pick up and put in the trash. That's a remnant. That's a remnant. A remnant is good for nothing. It can't be used to sew a full suit. That suit, if you go ahead and make one, it will have some missing hands <laughs> because you don't have enough material to make a full suit. <laughs> so a remnant is what is left over. But it has no value in itself. And it is not left because it is the most beautiful thing, but because it is good for nothing. It's good for nothing that is why it's left over. It's not left over because it has some value. So it stays or remains not because of merit, but because it has no use. It has no value. And we who are in Christ are said to have been chosen as the remnant. Good for nothing left of us. A remnant, according to grace, that's the language of Apostle Paul. A remnant according to the election of grace. So that's the only way you can bring a remnant to heaven. Because it's useless. The only way it can make it is if God graciously brings it to heaven. So all the sons of God are remnants according to grace. They are remnants from the pool of sin from which God chose some and made them complete in Christ Jesus. Because as a remnant, you were incomplete by yourself. But in Christ, we have been made complete. So God gives salvation not by physical descent, or race, or blood, or by the decision, or will of man, or any merit found in man. It all happens by him, by his sovereign will, in election, in his son, by his blood, by his Holy Spirit, in regeneration and sealing of his people. So the issue of sonship is very important to our understanding of how we have a standing with God. And this is the argument going on between Jesus and the Jews in John 8 and other places. That's the issue. The Jews think they have sonship because they are physical descendants of Abraham. Jesus, on the other hand, claims sonship by reason of being the son of God, the God-man, the Logos, the word of God who has come from the Father. And Jesus traces his paternity to being God and being with God from eternity. The Jews claim paternity to Father Abraham and they claim to be free and to be saved because of him. 
But Jesus comes and disturbs their peace and says, unless one is set free by the Son of God, they remain a slave forever. They remain a slave forever, which means they remain unsaved forever. One who is not in Christ will remain a slave to sin forever. They will never get saved. A slave to sin is one who is in bondage to sin and has no right of inheritance with God unless their legal status has been changed. Here is Jesus' argument. Jesus' argument is that a slave is not a son until they are freed. They can't both be a slave and a son. When it comes to the right of inheritance, you only have to have the title of a son. Otherwise, you can't inherit. And our salvation is pictured as an inheritance. An inheritance only goes to those who are sons. That's what Jesus is arguing. And so he comes and claims to be the only one who is able to make this change by setting us free from the bondage of sin and to be called the sons of God. He alone is able to change our legal status before God. And what is that saying? But you see, when he talks about the slave and the son, he's talking about two different legal status before the father. One legal status does not have any rights of inheritance. The other legal status gives you all the rights of inheritance. And Jesus says, I am the one who has to do that transaction. I am the one who has to set you free if ever you are going to inherit anything whatsoever of significance from God. And he says, he has to set you free. That is redemption language. He alone has enough redemption price, a ransom price to set us free from the bondage to sin and its consequences. He alone is able to justify us. Justification is a change of legal status. Justification is a change of legal status for those who were not sons, for those who were under condemnation. It is also a giving of a righteousness for those who had none. So when you change your status from being a slave to a son, there are a number of things that are happening. There's a legal change. Your birth certificate changes. Your legal standing before God changes. But not only that, you also gain righteousness in the process. So justification forgives sin. It removes sin. It acquits the sinner. Justification removes the dirty garments. And in their place, you are given new robes. Robes of vindication of your new legal status before God. The righteousness of Christ. And that righteousness of Christ is only visible to God. You can't see it. 
you can't experience it. Just as we learned from the Passover, that if God who saw the blood in the thickness of darkness, he said, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. That's all that God is looking for. He is not looking for your works. He is looking to see if you are clothed with the blood of Christ. That's the simplicity of the gospel. So a justified person is a free person. According to Jesus' language, if you are justified, you are a free person in the reckoning of the courts of heaven, not in your reckoning. The law has no more demands on one who is justified. If it did, that person would remain in jail or else the judge who set them free is corrupt. There's no way that should get out of jail if the law still requires you to be in jail. But also, if you have done your time, you have paid your dues to society, the law has to recognize that and set you free. Okay? So we know that God is not corrupt. He is holy and he is righteous. And he sets people free on just legal grounds, the merits of Christ Jesus. But a condemned person remains in jail because the law has not yet been satisfied on their behalf. But if they get justified, if they meet the demands of the law, they are free to walk out of prison and lead their lives as normal citizens. We recognize that even in our own judicial system, that if someone has been doing time, however long it was, two years, six months, 20 years, after they have done their time, they have to be set free. They have to be set free. And the law of God is holy, according to Apostle Paul. It's holy and it's righteous. And so it has to respect your freedom. It can't continue to exact payment when it was already paid the full amount. Politicians do that. <laughs> Politicians will come and say, okay, Stan, it's too me on that deal. But God does not do that. God does not do that. Based on the work of Christ, God has satisfied the law for us. And because the law has been satisfied, God is satisfied and we who are in Christ have been set free. And unless you are justified and understand justification, you will never be free. And that is why Jesus said, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. You shall never, ever come under bondage ever again. So one who is not justified and the one who does not understand justification, they may feel free, but they're not free. The Jews thought they were free and made theological arguments to argue their point that they were never in bondage to anybody. But Jesus said, no, no. <laughs> you are servants to sin and of course, they were not very happy about that. 
So when we are talking about freedom in a spiritual sense, we are not talking about the right to vote without any violence. We are not talking about lying on the beach undisturbed by the sharks. That's not what we are talking about. We are not talking about being free from debt. We are talking about being free from the condemnation that was due us because of our sin. So in this conversation between Jesus and the Jews, we have a paternity issue. We have a paternity issue. The Jews claim paternity to Father Abraham and they tie that to salvation. But Jesus says that is incomplete for salvation. There is more to being a child of Abraham than going to Ancestry.com and tracing your genealogy there. So they prove by their hatred of Christ that they are not the true children of Abraham. They want to kill him. So the Lord said to them in verse 37, now we are going to our text. In verse 37 of John 8, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Verse 38, I speak what I have seen with my father and, and you do what you have seen with your father. Jesus says, your claims to be of Abraham need to be qualified some more. Yes, according to the flesh, you are the physical descendants of Abraham, but you seek to kill me. And the reason why you seek to kill me is because my word has no place in you. My word does not abide in you. And those of Abraham do not behave that way. My word is not in you as it was in Abraham. So let me tell you the honest truth. Verse 38, I speak what I have seen with my father and you guys do what you have seen with your father. Now Jesus says, look, (laughs) here's the difference between you and I. It is paternity. Like father, like son. Like mother, like daughter. It is in the DNA. Jesus connects biology to behavioral sciences. Jesus speaks what he has seen with his father because he bears the DNA of his own father. But they, on the other hand, do what they have seen their own father doing. So Jesus says, everyone is bearing fruit and bringing the teaching and practice of their own father and what they have learned from their father. So they speak and so they do. So apparently the father of Jesus and that of the Jews are different. And because they're different, they do different things in different people. But the Jews are not impressed by this argument. Verse 39. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father, Jesus. And Jesus responded and said, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. So they replied and said, no, Jesus, you don't get it. 
you don't understand. Abraham is our father, Jesus. We are not the Philistines. We are not the Romans. We are Abraham's children. But the Lord says, no, not so fast. There are distinctive characteristics, qualities of those who claim Abraham to be their father. The DNA of the father has to be seen somehow in his own children. It has to be seen. Jesus says, my DNA is from God. And I do what I have seen with my father, God the father. But your DNA is not consistent with your claims of being children of Abraham. You need to go on a Mori show, on a Jerry Springer show, <laughs> for some free paternity test. It's a paternity test issue. Jesus says, if you have the spiritual DNA of Abraham, the issue is not physical DNA, it's spiritual DNA. Jesus says, if you had the spiritual DNA of Abraham, you would do the works of Abraham. Verse 40. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth which I had from God, Abraham did not do this. And so the evidence that they were not children of Abraham was shown in that they wanted to kill Jesus. A man who had told them the truth, unlike them who were liars. Now we need to talk about the works of Abraham, seeing that Abraham is a very central figure in the history of salvation. Abraham is very central in the history of the gospel. We need to know what works of Abraham were they that proved that he was of God. And that proved that he had a different DNA from these who are claiming to be descendants of his. Genesis 12. Let's go to Genesis 12, verse 1 to 9. Genesis 12, 1 to 9 says, Now the Lord has said to Abraham, that was before his name was changed, Get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house, to a land that I'll show you. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. And I'll curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him. And Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lord, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the Terebinth tree of Moreh, and the Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel. And he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abraham journeyed going on 
still toward the south. Genesis 15, verse 1 to 6. Genesis 15, 1 to 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abraham said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abraham said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. In Genesis 22, Abraham believed God when God showed up and said, I want you to take your son, the one that you love, and sacrifice him. Take Isaac and sacrifice him to me. Abraham obeyed that command. And we are told in Genesis 22, verses 15 to 18. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing, I'll bless you, and multiplying, I'll multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because ye have obeyed my voice. Look who was talking to Abraham. It was the angel of the Lord who spoke as God, not as an angel of God. This angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. It is he who was talking to Abraham all this time. And we are told that Abraham believed him. He obeyed him. So Abraham believed in Jesus. Abraham believed in Jesus. And that's why Jesus is going to say later in John 8 verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. So Abraham already knew something about Christ coming and the gospel. But hear more about the works of Abraham from Genesis 26, 4 to 5. This is the Lord speaking again and he says to Abraham, And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And those people who love the law who say, Oh, see, Abraham was under the Ten Commandments. No, that's not what is being said. He obeyed by faith what God had told him to do. The law as we know it only came when the children of Israel were coming out of Egypt. The law 
came by Moses. That's what the scriptures say. The law was given to Moses. But let's hear the New Testament commentary on everything that we have heard so far about Abraham. Hebrews 11. We have an extensive commentary that combines all these in one commentary. Hebrews 8 verse 11. No, no, sorry. Hebrews 11 verse 8 to 19. Hebrews 11, 8 to 19. These are all important things because when you meet with people who have some understanding of the Bible, but who are very much steeped in the law, they will trip you up and say, look, the Bible says Abraham obeyed God. He obeyed the commandments. Let's hear what the Holy Spirit gives as commentary of what was happening. So Hebrews 11 again, 8 to 19 says, By faith, Abraham obeyed (laughs) when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise, that is Canaan, as we just read, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised Therefore, from one man, I just have to make a commentary before I finish that. Remember what happened to Sarah when the Lord came and taught her about conceiving? She loved. She's just like, okay, you guys are kidding me. You are not serious. And yet, the Holy Spirit comes and says, Sarah pleased God. She actually believed. It's almost like having righteous lot. Go and read about Lot and hear what the Bible has to say about Lot in the Old Testament. But the New Testament comes and says, righteous Lot. How did Lot become righteous? By faith. (laughs) So anyway, back to Sister Sarah. Verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son 
of whom it was said, In Isaac, your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. By faith, Abraham believed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was foreshadowed in the offering of Isaac. That is what the last statement from Hebrews 11 is saying. He offered his only son through whom the promises were supposed to continue. And God comes and says, kill him. But how am I going to continue the promises if I kill the one who is supposed to carry the promises? And the Holy Spirit gives us commentary and says, he received his son back from the dead figuratively as a picture of the resurrection of Christ Jesus. So Abraham knows this theology. He knows the theology of the offering of Christ through Isaac. He knows the theology of the resurrection of Christ through the resurrection of Isaac. Because Isaac was just a type. And a type does not save anyone. That is why God did not kill Isaac. The true reality of what happened to Isaac was to be found in Christ himself. The death and resurrection that was going to happen was to be found in Jesus Christ from whom God did not withdraw his sword. And so, if the Jews are claiming to be the children or sons of Abraham, they too have to believe in Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is working. They have to believe in the gospel. But because they don't believe in Jesus, that is a sign of a different spiritual paternity. They are doing the deeds not of Abraham, but of their father who is not Abraham, whom Jesus is going to identify for them a little later as the devil. And Jesus, be nice to people. Jesus says, you do the deeds of your father. That's verse 41. Jesus corrects their thinking and says, I think you're confused about who your father is. I'm going to help you with that. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, the Jews, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. The Jews are not impressed by Jesus' boldness and accusation. And they know where Jesus is going and they want to silence him quick. They have to pour water on Jesus. So they step up the argument. They step it up to the highest notch and move away from Abraham to God himself. This is what the Jews know from scriptures. Deuteronomy 14, verse 1 and 2. Deuteronomy 14, 1 and 2. It says, you are the children of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave the front of your head for the dead. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. They know this. They have the scriptures. Exodus 4.22. 
they also know this about God. Having said, this God speaking to Moses. And he says, then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. And you can go to Jeremiah and find a lot of references of Israel being the children of God. So they say to Jesus, No, Jesus, we don't think you have read the scriptures right. Abraham is our father, and even God is our father. And what do you have to say about that? And oh, by the way, we also have some scoop. We have some debt that we know about you, and we are going to dig it up right now. We're going to dig it up. We are going to dig it up to shut you up. They think they know something about Jesus' birth. They know through the grapevine that there's something unusual about his birth. But because of bad theology, they say, we know Jesus, we know you, you are a child of harlotry. That's their commentary on the rumors. They are going to throw some dirty bomb. This is a dirty bomb. This is supposed to shut Jesus up. You were born of fornication. They are trying to embarrass him. You are an illegitimate child, was the charge. That's the charge. You're an illegitimate child. And in this culture, there's a lot of shame that should have you running away. Your mother was a fornicator. That's the only way you can have a child of fornication. Your mother was a fornicator, and you don't even know who your father is. Unlike you, we have Abraham and we have God as our true father. That's some serious exchange here. But don't miss this. In typical John irony, what are they saying? They are affirming the virgin birth of Jesus. As they had in the same conversation affirmed his death on the cross, when Jesus said, where I'm going, you cannot come. And they said, where is he going? Is he going to kill himself? That's John's way of weaving the gospel. So now in the same chapter, in the same conversation, we have had confirmation of the virgin birth by people who don't really understand it. We have confirmation of the cross by people who didn't really understand what was being said. But sinners have not changed. They will dig every debt, <laughs> if needed, to silence truth. But every time that we dig debt to throw around, for you to dig debt, it means what? You also have to handle the debt. <laughs> you can't throw debt without digging it. You have to handle it. And when you throw it around, guess what? Some of that is coming back at you. Okay, it's coming back at you. So you never and can never remain untainted by anything bad that you throw around. That's the point. Verse 42. But Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God, nor 
if I come out of myself, but he sent me. No, if I come of myself, but he sent me. The Lord says, you have nothing on me. If God were truly your father, you would love me. You would love Jesus. So the Lord puts a real test of authentic claims of knowing God. He says, first, if you really are of God, you would do the deeds of Abraham, which we have learned to be having faith in Christ. You would believe in Jesus. And secondly, you would love Jesus. Why? Jesus says, because he proceeded forth and came from God. And not only that, this is not just some errand to earth to hang around in the synagogues and be arguing with people and doing a show and causing trouble. Jesus was sent by God and brought the words of God. He is the word of God. He came to accomplish redemption. So he came on a mission, but they receive not his words. And because they do not receive his words, they do not receive him who sent him. So John the Apostle would later write and say in 1 John 5, 1, which is connected to the same arguments here. 1 John 5, 1. Whoever believes, 1 John 1, 1 John 5.1 Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him, see that, who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. So whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. That is a test of regeneration. That's what John is saying. That's a test of regeneration or of being born again. Jesus says, whoever believes Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, is born of God. If any man does not believe that Jesus is the Christ, they are not born again. But what is what is to believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Messiah or Christ is a title of Jesus. It's not his last name. It's his title. And it is title that respects his work as the God of salvation. Very important. The Christ is not just some ordinary guy. The Christ is God himself when he is working salvation. If one believes that Jesus is the Christ, it means they believe in his person as God and man because the Messiah is the God-man. If you don't believe that you are not born of God, if you don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Christ, the God-man, you are not born of God. This is also what it means. The one who believes that Jesus is the Christ is believing that their salvation only rests in the perfect work of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is the Christ only for those who know they can't save themselves. If you have some ability to help yourself to get saved, then Jesus is not the Messiah. He is just the helper. He is Jesus the helper. Jesus the co-pilot. And some will even say, Jesus my boyfriend. Yeah, Jesus my boyfriend. If Jesus is your co-pilot, he is helping you to navigate your own ship. He is helping you to navigate your own skies. But he is still on the controls. And in that respect, he is not the Christ. He is just a co-pilot. Jesus is not helping to carpet a house that is already standing. He is the foundation of the house. He is the house of God. Jesus is not coming and just putting light bulbs to a house that is already roofed. No, Jesus is the completeness of God's house. And John says, if you don't believe that Jesus is the Christ and you rest your salvation in the complete work of Christ, then you are not born of God. Look again at 1 John 5.1. Just as in John 8, this is the same apostle who is writing. He says, he gives us the criteria of checking salvation and says, number one, if you are born again, you believe that Jesus is the Christ. Number two, you love Jesus. You believe that Jesus is the Christ. Number two, you love Jesus. And he ties loving Jesus to loving the Father. Because they are one. They are inseparable. Jesus is begotten of the Father. And it is the Father who gave us the new birth. So if we have been given a new birth by the Father, we also reflect the DNA of the Father and we do the deeds of all those who were begotten of God like Abraham. But what is to love Christ in distinction to loving the devil because we are being given categories and there are just two categories as we have had. You either belong to Christ, belong to the Father, or you belong to the devil. Apostle John, as if he is commenting on John chapter 8, says this. This is actually a commentary on this conversation in John 8, but from 1 John 3. Let's go to 1 John 3, verses 10 to 24. We're just going to read through it. 1 John 3, 10 to 24 says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Two classes of people. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is he who does not love his brother. So love there is the practice of righteousness. Verse 11, For this is the message that you had from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. That's another sign of being born again. Loving the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. They still live in death. 
like Cain. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. What is eternal life abiding in them is Christ abiding in them. By this we know love, verse 16, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods, that's the application of how we are to love our brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? So the apostle argues from the greater to the lesser. He says, this is how Christ showed as his love. He laid down his life for us. But you, brother Robert, you are not going to get on the cross. The simplest that you can do is just to help other brethren. That is the pattern. That's the argument. Verse 18, my little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Verse 19, and by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Verse 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And a lot of people who want to talk about law, every time that they see commandment, they automatically think it is saying the law of Moses. And that is not a good way of teaching the Bible or believing the Bible. John tells us what commandments he's talking about. He is teaching the brethren to love each other. And he says, verse 23, And this is his commandment. Is he not going to define the commandment for us? Was this not a good point to say, now go back to Moses? This was a good point. But he says, and this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Is that not clear? He's not talking about the Ten Commandments. Now he who keeps his commandments which commandments? The ones we just read in verse 23. Abides in him. It's not saying the one who keeps the Ten Commandments, but the one who continues to believe in Jesus Christ and loving the brethren is the one who keeps the commandments of God. That's clear. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So that's another test that when we continue to believe in the gospel, Christ abides in us. If he doesn't abide in us, we'll be lost. We'll stop believing the, the gospel. I'm serious. So to love Jesus Christ is to love God. That's what Apostle John is teaching. To love Jesus Christ is to love God. And it is to love his work of salvation. To love God is to believe in him whom he has sent. This is the work that pleases God to believe in Jesus. 
This is what it means also to love Jesus. It means to glory in his work of salvation alone. That's what makes Jesus happy. You glory, you boast in the work of the Lord alone. It means also to confess him as Lord and Savior. You confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. You agree with what God is already saying about Jesus. It means also to believe in his gospel of grace. To believe in his gospel of grace. And people minimize the work of of grace. This is what people don't understand. Of all the work that God has done in creation, there's no work that is exalted above the cross. Absolutely. God revelation. There's no work that Christ ever did that is exalted above the cross. That is too important to God. And yet people minimize that and make it something that is so obvious. Okay, you told me about Jesus. Now tell me about me. What about me? Give me something to do. Make me important. No, it's Christ who is important. And when God has given you the spirit of his son, you cannot help but exalt Christ in his work of salvation. Remember what happened to Jesus. Jesus is the son of God. He made loud cries, according to the right of Hebrews. He shed tears. He shed his blood, accomplishing the work of salvation. And we cannot play foolishness with that. We cannot play foolishness for the sake of the flesh. We can't do that. We'll get in trouble for that. God will not let anybody go away if you play with Jesus. If you belong to him, he'll chastise you. He'll get you. He will discipline you. He knows every thought of every man and what you're doing, the motivations of everything that you're doing. He knows. And if it is wrong, he will chastise you if you belong to him. If you don't belong to him, he will leave you in your foolishness. And then when you die, you realize, okay, it's too late. I'm in serious trouble. Okay. So hear this again. To love Jesus is to rejoice in his righteousness alone. You have to rejoice. It is also to love those that he sacrificed himself for. To love the brethren. And the scriptures are clear that we, our love has to be prioritized. The love of the brethren is first and foremost the love that we have to prioritize. Those who bring or adorn the doctrine of Christ are the brethren. Those who believe the gospel are the brethren. Those who are of the household of faith. And Apostle Paul said the same point in Galatians 6.10. And he said, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all. Okay? He didn't stop there. Especially to those who are of the household of faith. So he focuses your attention To where you really need to be putting your energy. But what is that saying? It is saying one can't love Jesus. And one can't love God. Unless they love the gospel. Unless they are born again by the father. They can do church. But they will not love the gospel. If one is not born again. They can do church. But 
they don't love the gospel. To love the gospel is a work of God in those that he has given to Christ. And these are things that you have to pray for even with where you are and say, Lord, cause me to love Jesus. Cause me to love Jesus. And the Jews are showing that they are lacking in all these qualities. They have the Son of God right there with them. They don't believe that Jesus is the Christ. So they failed that test. They are not born again. They don't love the brethren. So they are not born again. But who are the true sons of Abraham? Because the question is, we are the sons of Abraham, Jesus. We are the children of God. And Jesus comes and says, no, you are not the children of Abraham. Because if you were the children of Abraham, you would do the deeds of Abraham. So who are the true children of Abraham? How are we to understand? Because we still have the Jews. They still claim to be the children of Abraham. But what does the scriptures actually say about that? Galatians 3, 5 to 9. We talked about this maybe one or two sermons back. But here is Galatians 3, 5 to 9, which we did not talk about. Galatians 3, 5 to 9. We're almost done. Galatians 3, 5, 9. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore, Know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand. So the gospel was preached to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. So this is what is happening in the Galatian church. The Judaizers, the Jews who were professing to be Christians, were coming and saying to the saints, for one to be complete, to be really complete, (laughs) you need to add the works of the law. You need to add the law to the gospel. You need to add circumcision. That was the issue. Yes, we believe everything about Jesus, but Ed Moses. That was the issue. And one of the nicest churches, Galatian church, did not have any other controversy that we know of other than this issue. The Corinthian church had all the issues that you can imagine on the alphabet. Apostle Paul never condemned the Corinthian church. He never condemned the Corinthian church. For all the sinful things that were happening there, he was just correcting them. But when it came to the actual gospel, the Corinthian church did not have issues with the gospel itself. It was just people going crazy. And God can deal with that. This is something that people don't understand. God can deal with all the other minor things, minor differences, all kinds of things. But he won't play when it comes to the gospel. And when it came to the actual gospel... Apostle Paul comes and says, you guys are so dead. You are so dead if you add Moses to the gospel. Christ stands alone. Justification is by Christ alone. Don't do it. Even if an angel, even ourselves, 
come preaching another gospel than the one that you received, let them be banned for God's glory. That was his conclusion. So this is what is happening. If you add one aspect of the Lord to your salvation, then you become responsible to do everything that the law says. And you now have to approach God based on your law obedience and not on the obedience of Christ. You don't mix and match what you want to do, what is convenient for you to do, like many people are doing. The Judaizers wanted to mix Moses, the law, and the gospel. But the apostle Paul said no. The receiving of the Holy Spirit came by faith of the gospel. Miracles that they had experienced came by the faith of the gospel. Righteousness, justification came by the gospel and not by the law. Therefore, if one claims to be a descendant of Abraham and think they have hope but do not believe the gospel, then they are fooling themselves. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. Only those who believe in the gospel of grace are the children of Abraham. And this is the sonship that made us to God. This is spiritual sonship, which is by faith in Christ Jesus. Abraham believed God as a pattern for all who would come in and after him, the father of many nations. So all Gentiles, all Gentiles and Jews who believe the gospel are the true sons of Abraham because they do the deeds of Abraham. They believe in what God says about Jesus and their faith as with Abraham is imputed to them as righteousness. But the Jews, even now in our time, they still don't believe in Christ. They don't believe in the gospel. So because they don't believe in the gospel, it's an evidence of their paternity. There are still even in our time a number of Jews who are Christians. Right? There are number, quite a number of Jews who are Christians. Those are the true children of Abraham. Anyone who does not believe in Christ is not elect. No matter if they trace their physical paternity to the patriarchs. That does not save anybody. Even John the Baptist had to say this as we finish. Matthew 5, sorry, Matthew 3. Matthew 3, 5 to 10. Matthew 3, 5 to 10. Then Jerusalem or Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him, that is to John the Baptist, and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to, to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
John the Baptist had the same understanding. He says, don't think just physical paternity of Abraham guarantees you of salvation. The flesh profits nothing. Your physical lineage had no spiritual advantage in salvation. God was able and is able to raise children to Abraham from these very stones. From these hearts of stone. Actually, it's a, I think it's a statement that is loaded with two meanings. To say from the physical stones as they were seeing them. But also to say God is able from these stony hearts to raise children to Abraham. Because Abraham is a different kind of a person. He is a spiritual person. And you guys are stony-hearted people. <laughs> and unless God actually does the work of changing your hearts and making them flesh, it's impossible. God is able. He's the one who has to do it. So there's that other understanding that you have to bring there to him. So these tones that have been so raised are able to bear fruits worthy of repentance. And that is to believe in the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire, the Messiah who was coming. And there, there's just some commentary, but a lot of people say they were baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire. <laughs> no. <laughs> you don't get baptized by the Holy Spirit and fire. Those are two kinds of baptisms. The ones who are born again, are baptized with the Holy Spirit. They are the ones who are the wheat, the elect that is gathered into the barn. But the chaff, the unbelievers, are baptized. They are immersed in the unquenchable fire. That is what is being said. And, and the writer there is saying, it's by the same person by which this happens. Baptism with with Holy Spirit and fire is Christ who does both works. Okay, so in conclusion, we have said a lot of things, but what does this all mean for you and I? All who are children of Abraham confess and believe that Jesus is the Christ. Very important. They are sons or children of God by nothing but grace. They only stand before God as remnants according to the election of grace. The Jews were believers who were unbelievers. They moved around following Jesus, claiming to believe in Jesus. But every time that Jesus told them the truth about himself, about themselves, about salvation, they did not like it. And many people laugh at Jews and think this just happened to those people who are stubborn and ignorant. No. We still have in our own ranks many professing Christians who profess to believe but are unbelievers. It requires grace to receive grace. It requires grace to believe in salvation by Christ alone. And that is why we should not minimize the gospel. We may make it ordinary and get tired of it, but the gospel is glorious. There are many who profess Christ, but believe only what they want to believe about Christ and salvation. 
they hate most of the doctrines that Jesus himself taught because they offend them. If you look at the conversation of the Jews and Jesus, the number one problem was the sonship of Christ when he was claiming to be God. Second, sovereignty and election. Those were the doctrines that they hated. And even in the church, people hate those doctrines. And yet it's sovereignty and election that are the foundation of the gospel and salvation. And yet they still go about saying they love Jesus. No, they don't. They're lying to themselves. If you do not love the doctrines that established the church, you have no part with Christ. And a church that feels offended by the doctrines of Christ is not a church of Christ. A church that does not preach certain doctrines in fear of offending people is not a church of Christ. If Jesus is there by his spirit, he gives people the boldness and the grace to preach and believe the truth about him. When it comes to salvation, we are what we profess to believe. For from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's not just for evil things. It's also for truth. If you have truth in your heart, you are going to speak truth. If there's no gospel in your heart, you can't speak gospel. If we can't publicly declare what we claim to believe, then we don't believe it. We have stumbled at the offense of the gospel. If we have works in our hearts, that is what we are going to be speaking. Okay, We are not entitled to pick and choose what we want to believe about what God says. We take everything about Jesus or nothing. If we do not anchor ourselves on Christ alone, we'll find ourselves looking for something to find comfort in. There's no comfort in anything that we do. But we will not stop looking. Children have pacifiers. They have sippy cups. They have toys. And as adults, if we do not abide in the gospel and in Christ, we'll find our own toys. I'm not lying. We'll find sippy cups and pacifiers to pacify our own consciences in what we do ourselves. And not what Christ has done. The true children of Abraham believe the gospel. And they are glad because Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and he was happy. He was glad. We also, if we are professing to have the faith of Abraham, we have to be glad. We have to be glad. We have to be glad that God has made us complete in Christ and we lack nothing that we require to meet him. That's the issue of the gospel. It's not about buying food right now. It's about how we are going to meet with God in peace. That's the issue. So those who are of the faith of Abraham consider their own righteousness as a filthy rag like Isaiah. Isaiah was a man of God. This is the guy who was open to the heavens and he saw Christ and yet he says, my righteousness is a filthy rag. And war is me, I am undone. And Apostle Paul, who saw Jesus, caught up in the third heavens, says, oh, by the way, my righteousness is done. My righteousness is done. Why? But what things were gained to me? (laughs) 
These I have counted loss for Christ. Whatever of gain I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. People have to have knowledge of Christ. A lot of Christians know nothing about Jesus. Apostle Paul says is the knowledge of Christ. If you don't know the knowledge of Christ, you don't have the knowledge of Christ, you're not growing in the knowledge of Christ, you are, you have to question your testimony. For whom, Apostle Paul says, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. That he may gain Christ. He says, whatever it is about me, it doesn't matter. It's all useless. You give me Christ and I'm content with that. Just give me Jesus and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, which is from my own obedience, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Amen. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you. We thank you for your gospel of grace that has given us the righteousness of Abraham, the testimony of Abraham that has enabled us to do the deeds of Abraham, which is to believe in Christ, to believe in his gospel, and to love his people, the brethren, those who carry, who adorn the doctrine of Christ, those who follow the commandments, the commandments of believing in the gospel and of loving the brethren. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for your grace that made us, us who were remnants, useless leftovers because of sin into God's people. We love this gospel. We have to love this gospel. Cause your people to see the beauty of this gospel because it's glorious. And cause your people not to get tired of hearing about Christ now. For if they desire him, they are going to be hearing about him forever and ever. So they may as well start now. We thank you, Lord, for this time that you've given us today. We pray again for all those who shall listen. That you may grant them ears to hear. And Lord, may you just profit them and edify them for the sake of Christ. We pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.